0: Alright, hey everybody, welcome again to another episode of History of Westeros Podcast, podcast dedicated to a Song of Ice and Fire series by George R. R. Martin, as well as a television show, Game of Thrones. This one is going to be a very heavy in spoilers, because we're going to talk about a preview chapter that George released last week, and it's going to touch on some very heavy spoilers, so if you don't want to be spoiled, this is not the episode for you.
1: Yep, there is nothing but spoilers in this episode, uh, even for some people who Normally, like spoilers, this may be even beyond what you're uh, used to. We posted yeah, yeah. on our Facebook page in advance about this one because it's a little different. This is the first time we've done a chapter analysis. I don't see us doing a lot of these, but we'll certainly do more than this one. Anytime there's a spoiler chapter released in the future, we're going to jump on it. We've, we've discussed uh, going back and doing the other chapter that's been released so far. Presumably you've heard of it. It's a Theon chapter. Um, mm. If you've listened this far into this episode, you're probably aware of what's out there. The chapter that we're doing today of course is on Arianne Martell and it's her first chapter from the Winds of Winter. It was posted on Martin's website so it's official as can be. Uh, It's not some sort of black, you know, uh, leaked chapter that he didn't mean to get out. Uh, The implication there would be that it's not ready for publication and that he might change it. But this one he saw fit to publish on his own website so if he does change it when the book comes out I expect the changes will be very mild Maybe some editing, just spelling changes, things like that, moving a paragraph from here to there. Nothing mm-hmm. major. Uh, the details and the main uh, information will be the same. Uh, so, yeah. with that in mind, let's uh, let's jump right in. I, I Hopefully, you guys have read this chapter already. That was part of um, our preparation for this, was asking you all to go ahead and uh, read it, because otherwise, a lot of it won't make sense, but... Uh, we're gonna do. We're gonna be pretty thorough. So even if you haven't read it, uh, you'll still learn a lot. It'll still be fun. But it's highly recommended that you uh, read the chapter first. It's kind of short too, so it won't take very long.
0: Yeah, it's a short chapter, but it's a lot of great information came out of it. A lot of tidbits here and there, and that's what we're gonna pretty much focus on. We're gonna start with a little background on the character of Arian, and you know, and that's kind of the you know a little historical aspect. You know, we we got some stuff on her in uh the Dance of Dragons. Um, I believe she even had a small appearance in uh, Feast for Crows. Not well, actually,
1: she was more in Feast for Crows than she was in dance. Uh, okay. If you uh, yeah, she was she had a bunch of chapters in dance or a bunch of chapters in feast and maybe you know what, maybe she doesn't have a chapter in. she doesn't have a chapter in dance at all. That's right. She has no chapters in dance. She just has uh, she appears with because uh, Area Hota has uh, a chapter. That's
0: right, yeah, that's okay, right. And,
1: uh, seen there. But then she's clearly back in uh, the winds of winter. Uh, she's her first chapter is one of the early ones, and we've already heard about at least a second chapter being in there. Uh, George read it at a convention much later, so the details of that one are, are sketchier and more likely to be changed. So we won't get into that uh, because that's not actually published in chapter form. So we, you know, a lot of the information there is trustworthy. But uh, undoubtedly a few of you have read those, uh, read the forums on that as well. So uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves now. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. So let's get uh, so like like Steve said, we'll start off with a little background on Ariane. Uh um, why don't you go ahead and uh take the lead on that, Steve?
0: Okay, well, right off the bat, she is um she's very strong-willed. Um she's she's calculating, she's adventurous, and she's quick to temper. She's got she's got a real quick temper about her. Um she also has like this whole clique that you know that she keeps around her, you know, a lot of times of uh, courtiers and confidants from company. And these include people like uh Sylvia, Santagar, um, Dre Dalt, and Garen of the Orphans. And she's also really close to her cousins, the Sand Snakes, which are basically the bastard women of Doran Martell. Um uh, Oberyn I'm sorry, <laughs> Martell. <laughs> but she's especially close with Tyene Sand. Um, let's see what else. Uh, she's
1: really attractive. That's an important part of her personality. Yeah. Well, maybe not a personality, but an important part of her character. Uh she's yeah. and she's not afraid to use it. Unlike the other seven kingdoms, even though the Dornishmen follow the faith of the Seven, they have much different cultural attitudes towards sex, especially women's uh, female sexuality. Uh, mm-hmm. Women elsewhere are typically uh, chaste, and uh, you know they don't talk about sex openly. It's, it's sort of a, a, a echoes of our of a puritanical culture in some ways. You don't you don't hear a lot of talk about uh, women you know, having a lot of freedom to express themselves sexually. But in Dorne, things are different. Uh, not only can women inherit, which is why Arianne is the heir to Sunspear, which is kind of uh, out elsewhere in the Seven Kingdoms, that would be strange. But mm. in Dorne, it's completely normal. In fact, uh, interesting <laughs> tidbit, the, the, Dorne, uh, the Martells are the most powerful house in Dorne, of course. The second most powerful house is House Ironwood. And their heir, the heir to Ironwood, is also a woman. So, uh, right now... Uh, in ten years, if, if you were to jump forward five or ten years, you'd find the two most powerful houses in Dorne ruled by women. Most likely. Obviously, one of them could die and, and uh, that could change. Yeah. But as things stand, uh, if, if nothing major happens, that's, that's where we'd be. So that's kind of neat. I like that. I like having that, um, like seeing the women be in charge a bit, and I like seeing uh, George uh, have that aspect in there so it's not just all male-dominated culture everywhere, because that's kind of boring. Mm. Um, and the differences between Dornish culture and the rest of Seven Kingdoms are... Good for creating some friction and drama that help drive some of the narratives in the story. Absolutely. Uh, a few other aspects about Arianne, um, like I said, she's not afraid to use her her beauty. She is uh, not to use this term as a negative, but she is a seductress. She uses her uh, every arsenal in her or every weapon in her arsenal, and one of her most powerful weapons is her effect on men. Uh, so she's not shy. And, of course, in The Feast for Crows, we know she seduces Ares and the Kingsguard knight. And we learn that, from this chapter, that she didn't really love him, although she feels more strongly about him than she thought she did, uh, in <laughs> retrospect. I think a lot of that is guilt over her plot failing. When she thinks about the plot to crown Marcella, she thinks of it as a... As a pretty much as the rest of us think of it, as a doomed to fail kind of stupid uh, and um, not very well thought through. <laughs> and yeah. she thinks of it like that way too, which is a good shot, sign of her maturity. And that's a big part of this chapter is showing the transition from what we, uh, what we spoke about in the, in the beginning here about how she's willful and passionate and aggressive and uh, has a bit of a temper sometimes. Yeah. But she's starting to change. This chapter shows a lot of her inner thoughts, and it shows that she's maturing, and she's starting to become more like her father. She's starting to understand why her father is so cautious. It's not that he's a coward. It's not no. that he's afraid. It's not that he's uh, doesn't want to. You know, that he, not that he's uh, afraid of bloodshed. It's that he's very, very uh, astute in uh, in estimating their own strengths and weaknesses as it pertains to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. And the fact is that Dorn is just not that powerful. They cannot just go to war with the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. That, that would be a disaster for them. They would lose.
0: The best um, thing to do is actually guard the marches.
1: Right. They could maybe start a war and, and defend their own territory because they do have some of the best, uh, using a sports term, home field advantage that you can imagine. The deserts, the dry deserts and mountain passes are something that they're all very used to and then invading armies are not. Remember that this, that the dry uh, deserts and the mountains were enough to stymie Egon the Conqueror himself and his his sister wives on their dragons. Mm. Uh, there's an episode, there's an uh, anecdote directly relating to that later in the chapter that we'll get to. But for now, it's just important to note that even the dragons couldn't beat Doran uh, straight up. So this is an important thing for them. They're able to defend their own territory very well. But as far as extending outside of their territory, and seeking revenge, which is the crucial thing that so many of the Sand Snakes want. They want revenge for the death of the Red Viper. They want revenge for the death of Elia and her children. And this has been an old grievance. This it's happened 17 years ago at the point of this chapter. So it's a very old grievance, and a lot of Dornish people being the way they are, uh, strong-willed, bloodthirsty, and rebellious, uh, not wanting to be ruled, wanting to be free. Uh, This is something that a lot of Dornish people have really uh, wanted for a long time. Yeah,
0: they've done harbored some uh, ill will, if you will, towards the crown.
1: Yeah, and towards Doran himself for not doing anything. Um, Yeah. And Ariette was on on that side. She was thinking, like a lot of the other people, why isn't isn't my father doing anything? And she started to think that he was, like a lot of others, that that he was a little weak. But once she learned more, once he trusted her more, and the reason he didn't trust her as much is because she talked too much. And... Mm -hmm. He's a very secretive man. He understands the the problems that occur with telling too many people your plans. Uh, you can't trust everyone, and especially in his position, when there are people who are openly calling for his removal as and uh, calling him a coward openly, like other lords refusing to drink a toast uh, in his presence, things like that. They're they're openly defying him because they know he won't do anything. But <laughs> And Arianne, you know, being a younger person, and, and you know, kind of being full of uh, piss and vinegar and, and wanting blood, just like most of her countrymen, uh, she, uh, she just couldn't see it her father's way. But once he started letting her in on his secrets, she started to understand. She started to get the full picture better, and she started to realize that he wasn't being idle. He was working towards this, these plans the whole time. He was working towards marrying her to Viserys. He was working on, he's working on marrying Quentin to Daenerys and bringing them dragons which yeah. will yeah. totally change that. that that everything I talked about about them not having the military strength to do a lot of da- uh, damage outside of their own kingdom. Throw all that out if they get dragons. Yeah. <laughs> They're well, being the weakest to the strongest. Well, near the weakest to near yeah. the strongest. Yeah, and that shows how um
0: how Philippa savvy he really is and uh, and with bringing her into the fold, she's starting to realize that okay, now I see what your aim is. He's playing the long con, or the long game, if you will. Yeah. And and that's why it's taken so long. It's taken, you know, seventeen years just to get to this point.
1: A lot of the people in his court and his family, they want blood. And he wants blood too. But he isn't gonna screw up his whole country. He's not gonna ruin himself and his family and his countrymen just to get it just to get a quick fix. He wants something that will work. Mm. He wants lasting damage. He wants to bring about the utter ruin of Tywin Lannister and all that he had. All his works, you know, everything that Tywin Lannister did. Um, unfortunately for Doran, uh, most of the revenge he's going to be able to take won't be directly on Tywin or on Sir Gregor, or on uh, the Lannisters directly. They've had so much go wrong anyway. Uh, Tommen's still out there, and and Myr- so they have Marcella, but Joffrey's dead. And Tywin died in a most ignominious way, sitting on the privy, shot by his own son. That's That was bad, for a guy yeah. like Tywin, who was full of pride, that if he could have lived for another few minutes to to, to reflect on his own death, he would be very. Oh, up. he'd be <laughs> <laughs> He would. He would that, end was, that was a bad,
0: bad way to go. And you've seen me joke about that in the in the uh, on the Facebook page. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to see Tywin you know the claw in his belly and feces flying everywhere,
1: <laughs> so. So we start off in the chapter. Let's start from the beginning here and, and get in a few uh, little details here. Uh, we start off with Doran sending her off. We start off with the scene in which he actually stands. He actually rises out of his wheelchair and embraces her. And this almost brings her to tears. And she, point, and she points out that she's not a sentimental person. But she realizes how incredible the, uh, what this means. The act of standing for Doran Martell is incredibly painful. In fact... I didn't think it was possible. Uh, in an Ario Hota chapter a while back when I was reviewing these chapters uh, in preparation for this podcast and uh, one of our next podcasts, which, by the way, we're going to be doing another, cha- another installment of Dornish, uh, another Dornish podcast, rather, on the Dornish plots. A lot of them are going to be covered here, but there's so much going on. We're going to focus on the ones in this chapter. Uh, it's probably going to be our next episode. That we're going to have uh, a look at some of the other aspects of Doran's spoilery aspects there. So it's going to be all about Doran for the next uh, couple of weeks here at History of Westeros podcast. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah.
0: Uh, and, so and this part of the, and oh, I'm sorry, this part, of this portion here is, uh, takes on such places, such a small portion of Doran. We only stay on the far eastern tip just for this chapter where yeah. there's so much more going on and Doran is massively huge
1: it's yeah and, there, and there's and it's been there's a lot a lot of it's been kept quiet for most of the series and we find we started to find out a lot of it and and with that detail that, that George gave us we're able to make a lot of inferences and a lot of a lot of uh, reason thoughts based on uh, incomplete data but uh, but anyway the chapter I was referring to Ariel Hota specifically says that Doran Martell's legs are quote-unquote useless so apparently they're not entirely useless he's actually able to stand for a minute or two. And just the just just going over a bump in his wheelchair is extremely painful for him. So this standing is really big. He he really wants, and he knows that his daughter will will see it as an act of love, and that she'll be uh, affected by it as well. And and he wants to. He 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 realizes how important this mission is, how much he's entrusted with her, and uh, it's interesting to me that this party that he sends with her is small, which makes sense because he doesn't want anyone finding out about it. They can move swiftly, and they can uh, avoid being noticed. But it's interesting to me that no one in this party is, there's no sort of elder statesman. There's no voice of experience. Certainly nobody that could visually identify John Connington. Uh, who would have last been in Westeros about 18, 19 years ago? So certainly there's some people in Westeros that would have seen him. Certainly some people in Doran that would have seen him, since he was a commander in the rebellion where a lot of Dornishmen fought, and he they fought on the same side. But furthermore, John Connington was squire to Rhaegar, and Rhaegar was married to Elia. So you got to figure Elia's the sister of Doran Martell. Doran Martell probably went to court when she got married attending his own sister's wedding he wasn't in a wheelchair then so he could have traveled no problem uh, most likely uh you'd think that considering how tight they were and how much of a family man he is he never would have missed this wedding and of course he doesn't travel alone he's going to have his nightly he's going to have a, a retinue of, of other lords coming to witness uh the marriage of a uh, princess of Dorne to the crown that's a huge event uh Remember how many lords went with Oberyn Martell when he went to take that council seat, um, and, and Tyrion and Podrick Payne and Braun greet them coming up the King's Road, and it's a, it's a who's who of the lords in Dorne. There's, there's some of the greatest lords in Dorne show up with him. So if, that, if, if they send that many lords to take a council seat, it's pretty likely that they would send a pretty large group to witness this wedding. So no. I thought it was interesting that there was nobody in this party. Uh, and a quick review of this party... Um, to mention, just so you know who, who, we, who we're dealing with. herself herself's about 23, and she's obviously the leader of this party. Uh, with her is three knights. Sir Demon Sand, he's the most noteworthy member of this party uh, because he's got all sorts of personal connections to these people. He was the first person to... Uh, basically, he took uh, Ariane's virginity. Uh, he was probably a virgin at the time, too. They were both about 14, 15. And he was so besotted with her that he asked... For her hand in marriage. Now, this is of course ridiculous. He's a bastard, and she's the no- she's the heir to Dorne. So that, as far as you know, as far as two human beings go, they they like each other. It doesn't seem ridiculous. But as far as court and uh, highborn marriages, this this sort of thing would not happen. That's just it's just it wasn't going to yeah. happen.
0: So yeah, she's very so, so, full on herself. as far as that goes, you know, you know yeah. hey, no looking guy, he's great eye candy, but uh, you know, he's beneath my status in life. So yeah, this is this can't happen.
1: So the yeah, so the, so analyzing this party, I think is really interesting because Doran, everything he does is very calculated. He's very careful and cautious, and thinks through every maneuver. So the people in this party, he chose them for a reason. The fact that there's exactly seven tells me, uh, well, maybe that's a little bit of piety. That's exactly seven. Seven's a blessed number. By itself, it doesn't mean a lot, but they also had there's also seven ravens, and. In the feast where they present the skull of Gregor Clegane to the, the assembled Dornish nobility, there's seven courses. I don't know. To me, there's a little bit of undercurrent, a little undertone that Doran Martel's kind of a pious guy. So he may have set mm-hmm. this the group, made the set the group at s- a size of seven as sort of a uh, uh, extra blessing on the party. But back to the actual makeup of the party itself. So we have Sir Damon Sand, who is also the squire of the the red viper himself so that's a pretty big deal and he's a guy that refused to drink to the drink the toast to uh... to the King Joff- uh, to King Tommen also at the same uh... moment where the skull was presented the skull of Sir Gregor was presented to the nobles of Dorne uh... there was a toast given and Dor... Ariel Hotan notes, takes note of who drinks and who doesn't and Sir Sand. One of the, also known as the Bastard of God's Grace. He's noted as one of those who does not drink. Um, a little more background on him, uh, because this is the History of Westeros podcast. We're trying to connect all the dots in the background. And he is the son of Ryan Illyrian. He's a bastard, of course. And Ryan Illyrian is, is the heir to the Illyrian lands, which I uh, forget the, the name of their house uh, off the top of my head. But Well, that's the name of their house. I forget the name of their castle. Uh, anyway, she he is married to Enos Ironwood, who is the heir to Ironwood. Like I said before, Ironwood is the second most powerful house in all of Dorne, so they're pretty huge. So Sir Demon Sand is uh, his father is married. You know, she's he's 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 pretty strong. You know, basically his his family connections are really strong. Let's, let's put it that way. So why is he included in this party when he has this history of? Uh, with, with Arianne. Well, he's said to be one of the finest swords in all of Dorne. He's a great fighter, so that's one thing. You, you need a lot of bang for your buck in a small group. You want, you want yes. like, if you're going to put a few fighters in there, you want them to be badasses. And he is, we've never seen him fight. We've heard about him being great. He was taught by the Red Viper. Uh, he's, he's highly regarded. He's young and tough, and we'll see from the dialogue that comes from him later in, in the uh, chapter. He's kind of a no-nonsense, kind of a uh, narrow view of things kind of guy uh, so kind of a, a good kind of a good kind of a perfect fender kind of guy that's not gonna uh, not gonna be too creative. he's just gonna look uh, perceive threats uh, perceive things as threats or as not threats and and act on them so uh, I think and of course, given his uh, attraction area in their history, I think Doran may see him as somebody that is really willing to lay his life down to be a defender really like yeah, like a really, like a true, a true, uh, true sword shield, really fitting the definition of that term, really fitting it to a T. He's, he's gonna be a guy that I think that will not do like, uh, say, Boris Blunt, Boris Blunt did when, when Tyrion ambushed the party that was supposed to sneak Tommen out of King's Landing so that if Stannis took it, Tommen, Tommen would be safe. Well, if you recall what happened there, when that party was ambushed, Boris Blot surrendered. He didn't, let alone fight to the death for his king, or even, you know, he just surrendered immediately. I don't think Sir Demon Samuel would be that type. I think he'd be the kind that would sort of get in harm's way and, you know, sort of die nobly defending his princess, uh, kind of doing right by her, doing, you know, doing his job. So, and with him are two other swords, uh, two young knights, uh, Garibald Shells and Joss Hood. I don't know anything about them. Um, I didn't even honestly didn't even bother to look up their houses. I hadn't heard either of those names before. Garibald and Shells, don't, those names don't ring a bell to me. Uh, they don't really have much in the way of dialogue, and this, there, there's a couple of lines they put out, but if there's anything important about them, I, I haven't detected it, so we'll have to see. But I suspect they're just uh, two kind of away team members that, that maybe, uh, hopefully, they don't wear, hopefully they're not wearing red shirts, so they'll survive. Now, there's, uh, the rest of the party is comprised of one guy, uh, a young man who is known for uh, working with the ravens. His nickname is Feathers, and he's got, like I said before, he has seven ravens. And those ravens are obviously uh, trained to return to Sunspear, or actually to the water gardens, I would think, to, uh, to report to Doran. So uh, Doran's going to get up to seven messages about this mission. And possibly more if they can pick up, if they pick up more ravens that can go back to Sunspear. I don't really know how that whole thing works, but uh, and then the rest of the party is three women. We've got, or sorry, two women. One of the women being Ariane herself. Uh, one of the women is Lady uh, Jane, Ladybright. and Lady Bright. Uh, they're a uh, that's a no, that's a noble house of Dorne, and she is. Let's see. Uh... <clears throat> she's young and pretty. That's really all we know about her. There, 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 she also doesn't have much in the way of dialogue in the chapter. And we, we haven't been able to determine a whole lot about her. But she's a, a lady, and she's one of, kind of Arianne's court ladies. You know, like, uh, sort of like, uh, if you think of, say, Marjorie Tyrell, who has a lot of her cousins around her, it's sort of the same sort of situation where there's a lot of, um, where you, you typically have, like, courtly ladies that sort of, Hang around the the higher born the, the highest born women and I don't I don't really have a whole lot to say about that situation except it's one thing that's interesting is that Arianne doesn't actually know this one very well she doesn't know Jane Lady Bright very well so she doesn't really know a lot of these people because as we as Steve pointed out earlier the companions that she that she her best friends from childhood she involved a lot of those in her plot to crown Marcella and the punishment for them was various forms of exile and and. She doesn't have access to those friends anymore, so uh, she doesn't really know these people very well, except for Sir Demon Sand himself. These people are all largely strangers to her. Now, the most interesting, perhaps, member of this party is Lady Lance uh, Elia Sand, who is obviously named after her her uh, aunt, uh, Elia Martell. Uh, Oberyn Martell is is Elia Sand's father, and Elia was Oberyn's sister. And the two, according to Oberyn, were Inseparable. They were very close in age, and they were very close, and they traveled all over together. They were they were as tight as brother and sister can be, from all accounts. And so that that also go by the way as an aside that explains why Oberyn was so ready to stand up and fight Gregor Clegane uh, even after so long in order to avenge her. He really really loved her. So, Elia Sand herself is the fifth Sand Snake of eight. Uh, the other three. Who are younger are pretty much all uh, too young to be uh, major factors at this point. Um, and in the Dornish plots episode, we're going to review exactly what all the seven, well, all the Sand Snakes are doing and where they're at. That's kind of an interesting thing. Ilaria uh, Sand, Elia's mother, the, the paramour of uh, Oberyn Martell, the one who was there to witness the duel in King's Landing. She. Mm-hmm. Has a very fatalistic view of what of the comings and goings in the political uh, landscape right now. She thinks that doom is coming to Dorne and war is going to spread everywhere. And she's, uh, I think, maybe part of her attitude is a bit fatalistic because she lost her paramour and she was deeply in love with Oberyn and vice versa. And maybe the world seems a bit more empty without him. And so she's predicting that things are going to go bad everywhere. I, and I don't think she's wrong, even though I do think she's a little bit. She's partly speaking out of loss and despair. But I think she's also kind of right. Uh, things are about to blow up everywhere. as Bad as things seem throughout Westeros with all the wars and yeah. the terrible yeah. things that have happened, I think it's going to continue to get worse. Yeah, it's uh, going to spill
0: over. It's to, I mean, I don't see any way it could spill over into Dorne.
1: Yeah, I think that so we've got... The,
0: the Reach had been secured, more or less, uh, with the with the... The red wedding events, yeah. Um, so now it's going to be really easy for them, and the and the, the north is pretty much an upheaval. So now they're going to be able to focus. Okay, let's get these upstarts down here to fall in line for a little bit now, you know, and solidify Talman's rule.
1: Yeah, and, and of course, and then if the others haven't even really come onto them, seen as a major player yet. That's going to throw everything out. We've got Daenerys is probably going to land, and Aegon has just landed. Yeah, I mean. Folks, we haven't, seen, we haven't seen anything yet. The, the, the worst is yet to come. Like, w- Westeros, the War of Five Kings is going to look like, you know, a little skirmish compared to what's coming in my, you know, in my, our, using all of our predictive powers here at the History of Westeros podcast. We're, we're predicting it to uh, get worse. Buy share, buy war bonds, people. If you're an investor yeah. and you want to invest in Westeros, buy war bonds, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah the War of Five Kings is going to look like a game of skee-ball.
1: Yeah. <laughs> game, it is going to make the Game of Thrones look like an actual game. This is going to be a real, real bloody war. Uh, yeah. and it's, who's going to be left standing at the end of it? So, um, but getting back to this chapter, we have uh, Elia Sands some more, more. More on her. Uh, why is she in this party? She's a young girl, a 15, 14 year old girl who's famous already. For her skill with a lance. And this is really important. Not direct, because not anything directly to do with her as a lance. She, she's referred to as Lady Lance a couple of times in the chapter. And I think George wanted to make that, m- make that mention a few times because. Now, think back to the tournament at Harrenhal, as told to us by Bran. Uh, well, not Bran, but by Mira and, uh, and Jojen Reed, told to Bran. And they tell the story of Harrenhal and this episode of The Night of the Laughing Tree which is the story of how uh, a mystery knight uh, took revenge on, some, on uh, some people who had wronged Howland Reed, the, uh, an important bannerman of the Starks. Uh, of course, he becomes even more important later. But mm-hmm. basically, the long and short is that there, we don't know who the knight of the laughing tree, but there's a st- very, very strong reason to believe it's Lyanna Stark or was Lyanna Stark. Uh, and I think this is a build-up to that. George needs to make the notion of a female jouster being very successful a little more believable to some of the some of us readers who perhaps don't um, have more understanding about how jousting works. He's pointed it out. He's dropped hints throughout the series, going dating back to the first tournament where Loris Tyrell defeats Gregor Clagain. Now, because he, he wants to point out that jousting. Is mostly horsemanship. It's something like three quarters horsemanship. You hear Ruse Bolton talking about how amazing Liana was at racing and how uh, certain other characters are uh, great at riding and how they're not so great at fighting other than when they're on a horse. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's hints and clues all throughout the series, and I think George just wants to set the stage for that eventual reveal that Liana Stark was the Knight of the Laughing Tree, that she was. Uh, there's some parallels to Arya with her being uh, a fighter, and them looking similar, and them having similar kind of wild personality, untamed. Uh, Lyanna wanted to carry a sword around, but Ricard, Stark wouldn't let her. Things like that. Lots of little clues, and hey, that's our job here at History of Westeros, where, where we, we kind of gather all those clues together and connect them, and tell you folks what we discover, and and hopefully we're right most of the time. <laughs> so. So Lady Lance, that's part of the read, but that's not, that doesn't explain to us this whole Night of the Laughing Tree episode still doesn't explain to her why she's in this party. Uh, her, the, the implication as far as the stories, uh, the overall narrative's history is important, but still doesn't tell us why did Doran Martell put this kind of crazy, unruly, hard-to-control girl in Arianne's secret party to go negotiate uh, important political strategies with um, a person that who's who's even whose very identity is in question well I think the answer is very subtle but once uh, once it occurred to us it, it became kind of like oh yeah well I think it's because Doran is teaching Ariane a lesson basically the same lesson that Ariane taught him which is what how much of a pain in the ass is it if you have this willful young girl running around doing whatever she wants, which is what Arianne used to be? Yeah. So Doran is saying, look, this is what you used to be. So whenever Lady Lance acts up and is a pain in the ass for Arianne, Arianne can think to herself, that's how I used to be. This yeah. is my, this is the problem, this is the exact sort of problems I used to cause for my father. My father is showing me you know, what awesome. I was like. Yeah. So. Feeding her a little of her own medicine, I think. exactly. And uh, I wish I could remember which forum poster pointed that out, but I think that was it. Um, I would love to give them credit for that. I'll have to do that later. But I think that was it. I think that's clearly it. There's, there's really no other. Besides, the, there's one. Actually, there is one other thought. And because they're eventually going to negotiate with Egon, who they don't know if he's real or not, at this point, Doran Martell specifically points that out. He's like, I don't know if he's real. And frankly, let's be honest here, folks. They're never going to know if he's real. There's no DNA testing in Westeros. There's one, maybe two people who really, really know who he is. Now, George may spell it out for us readers to the point that we, are, we, we have it basically confirmed to us one way or another. So I'm not talking about the readers. I'm talking about the characters. The characters mm-hmm. in the books themselves, they have no way of knowing for sure. The only person that knows for sure is Varis. And maybe Illyrio knows as well. But that's it. John Connington doesn't know. Well, I'm sorry, there's another one or two people that might know. Like Lady L'Amour, this so-called Septa L'Amour. She could be in on it. She could have been there. If there was a baby swap, she could have been part of it. So I should say maybe more than two people that could know. But it's a very small group. And those people couldn't possibly produce any sort of evidence that would definitively prove who he is. So his reputation, basically the proof of whether he's really Rhaegar's son is really going to just depend on how he behaves and whether he acts like Rhaegar's son and whether he's successful. Nothing uh, quells dirty rumors like success. You know, like, you need to look no further than professional sports in America to look at how athletes are able to overcome really bad things that they've done, whether it's The suggestion or outright proof of them uh, being involved in an affair or getting involved in something that might have been, you know, statutory rape or date rape. We don't, you know, case-by-case basis. Uh, A lot of these guys, guilty or not, I'm not making any judgments. A lot of them probably were guilty and some of them probably weren't, but without making judgments it's pretty easy to see that most of them were pretty much able to continue with their career pretty similarly, and this is the same kind of thing. If Aegon is successful, it doesn't matter whether he's really Rhaegar's son. People are going to love him if he comes in, sets the kingdom to rights, looks the part, you know, looks like a great leader, looks like a Targaryen, is bold and noble and charismatic. People are going to say, oh, he must be Rhaegar's son. Look at the way he's acting. Nothing, there's just nothing like the bottom line to speak to your uh, rumors surrounding you. So even if people suspect he's not who he says he is, they won't care. He's the savior of the realm. That's what Varys and Illyria are trying to set up. And, uh, so Arya is basically kind of being sent out there to kind of determine who this guy is. You know, it's not necessarily important if he's really who he says he is. What matters is if he has the stuff, if he has the balls and the means to take the Iron Throne, that's what matters. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't even matter if John Connington's who he says he is, and I think that's part of the reason that Doran Martell didn't include someone that could ID him visually. Let alone the fact that he might not be able to trust any of those people that could ID him. That's another. That's another story, and we know that he's very—he's not exactly the most trusting of people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's very cautious. So, uh, so there's a lot to say about about whether um, the notion of whether Egon and John Connington are really who they say they are, but also on some levels it just doesn't matter. If they're successful, they can say who they can call themselves. You know, they can call themselves. A fool. They can call themselves. Uh, they, can, they can call themselves "Egg on the Conqueror." They can call themselves uh, "the reincarnation of the Seven. They, you know, they can call themselves whatever they want. If they're successful and they do right by the commoners, if the commoners believe in them and the nobles uh, follow their banners, doesn't matter. Look how well. Look how well Stannis's campaign of of uh, pointing out that Joffrey isn't really uh, the son of Robert and uh, and and Cersei didn't didn't work very well, did it? But if he had won, it would have worked people were willing to believe it when stannis put that out there in so far as they followed renly <laughs> not so much stannis <laughs> they, but there, and the reason that being is they wanted to follow renly renly is fits the description of the of of the character i was kind of spelling out before he's a, a great guy he's charismatic he's a great leader he's he's noble and positive and honorable and just and, and smiley and all these positive things People were willing to follow him despite the obvious fact that he had no real claim to the throne. Like, it's one thing to say Joffrey had no right to inherit because he might not be who they say he is as far as his parents. But there's no doubt Stannis is ahead of Renly in the, in the succession line. No one could possibly make a claim otherwise. Renly's claim was entirely built on the fact that everybody liked him more and that people were following him and not Stannis. So, yeah, Stannis wasn't more liked at all. Yeah, he's one of the, he's, out of all the candidates, the only guy that was probably least liked in Stannis was Balon Greyjoy, and he wasn't actually going for the Iron Throne, he was just going for, you know, a chunk of the kingdom to carve out for himself. Mm. So, yeah, so so that's a little lesson in the difference between politics and bloodlines and conquering. It's not always simple. You can't just say, oh, he's the true king because of his blood. That, (laughs) the true king is the guy who is left standing at the end of it. It doesn't matter what his bloodlines are. The bloodlines can help, but they will not, uh, you know, they're not going to swing the sword for you. No. And, and Doran Martell realizes all of this. He wants this, he desperately wants Elia, some part of Elia to have survived in this child. But he knows he has no way of knowing for sure. He, he just. He, he ultimately, he's concerned with the future of Dorn and how, uh, how these candidates can help him with that, and how they're, they affect the whole political scheme. Ultimately their, their connections, uh, their familial connections aren't gonna actually matter that much, except for how they're perceived by the rest of Westeros. It's what people believe that matters, not what the truth really is. Anyway. Okay, so, uh, so that is, uh, what I was getting into there before, uh, we got into that aspect, is that maybe there's a small chance that he suspects Lady Lance will uh, seduce or, you know, you s- know otherwise otherwise charm young Aegon himself because he's 16, and of course, 16 year old 16 <clears throat> year old boys who are good at fighting are, you know, they're going to have their their uh, glands in full swing. He's going to be horny. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Sixteen year old boy that's a, a young conqueror. I mean, he's. Nah. He's going to want to get, be getting getting busy pretty soon here. So, and she's shown in this, she shows in this chapter that she's got that Dornish kind of lustiness going on. She's she's She talks to one of the younger knights about spanking her, uh, kind of flirts with him, sort of taunts him with her sexuality. Now, it's not mentioned that she's attractive. We don't, she's not mentioned that she's not. It's mentioned that she's kind of a tomboy, that she rides horses a lot, that she rides really fast. She smells like horses a lot. But... You know, sometimes that can be appealing to some guys, and if she's also, you know, like a, she's also kind of a young hottie or whatever, then that all better for her at charming him. So maybe, uh, maybe, maybe Doran thought of that as well. Uh, so, um, and maybe, so maybe it's kind of a double whammy. He he hopes that maybe either Arianne and Egon will sort of hit it off, uh, and of course, Arianne, he knows his own daughter pretty well. He knows that she won't be shy about using that you know, using her, her beauty as a weapon. We've seen her do that plenty of times. Um, and uh, maybe Lady Lance will do it as well. So there's a couple interesting possibilities. Now she also thinks about seducing John Connington a little later in this chapter and quickly dismisses the notion because he is... Uh, there's not much from, from what she hears about him, from what Damon Sand tells her. She asks him the question about, what, what do you know about John Connington as a man? And uh, she doesn't really... Uh, he's able to say... He doesn't know a lot. Besides what he's heard, and it's sort of an exposition for the readers, he's a kind of a hard man. Um, very, uh, when he was younger, he was kind of bold and reckless, and and kind of noteworthy for his valor and a good, but also as a really good fighter. And these are things that Arianne doesn't really care about. She wants to know about what kind of person he is, like like his attitudes, like basically on top of other things, whether or not she can seduce him. Um, and quickly, she dismisses that notion because you know he, he's not known for being a guy that's lusty. He's not known for he's not married, though. But he's also known for a guy that didn't remarry and, and wasn't known for lots of you know affairs. And basically, that, there are not a lot of stories about him doing anything with women. And of course, we as the readers have seen that inside his head, and there's a very strong uh, implication. Well, it's more than strong because George outright tells us that one of the point of views in Dance the Dragons is, is gay. And there's really, you know, through process of elimination and given the way John Connington thinks about Rhaegar as his silver prince and thinks about his hair and how how beautiful he is. Not handsome, beautiful. The implication is very strong that John Connington is gay and that he loved Rhaegar as more than a friend. This isn't particularly important as far as the story goes. Of course, there's, you know, it's, it's a, this is supposed to be a realistic story. There's going to be gay people here and there. But it does show... This is the real answer to why John Connington won't be seduced by Ariane, is that he's just entirely not interested in women. <laughs> um, even if he isn't gay, he's not interested in women. Uh, so, uh, And of course, he's also not going to get married because he has grayscale, and he doesn't want anyone finding out about that. He can, it'd be hard to keep that sort of information from a wife who's going to see you naked. She's going to be thinking, why does he always wear gloves to bed? <laughs> why does he always. <laughs> Why does he always want me to leave the room whenever he takes his gloves off? So, so that wouldn't get very far. But, uh, okay, so let's, let's move a little forward in the chapter here. We've got a few historical notes that we want to get to. And we want to talk a little bit more about um, what happens as she travels a little farther here. So let's see here. Um, now, I want to talk about, uh, for a few minutes, about the... Water Gardens, which is where the story starts. Uh, the Water Gardens are emblematic of Doran's attitude towards ruling. He sort of, you could say he pretty much gets a lot of his attitude towards how he wants to carry himself as a ruler and how what he thinks is important, and what a ruler should consider important, from the Water Gardens itself. Now, I'll explain. Uh, the Water Gardens are... Simply put, they're kind of an outdoor fountain. They're like a what, like, you kind of imagine the medieval version of a fancy modern water park. Uh, also, sort of similar in scope and, and idea to the, to the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Um, sort of a, a place in the desert where they built springs and, uh, and trees and it was a place for cool breezes and a place to kind of escape the hot sun of Dorne. But that's not the important aspect of it. The important aspect of it is the the political, uh, well, the notion that all children are equal, and there's a really kind of uh, beautiful story that goes along with this. the the the, the origin of the founder, the builder of the water gardens was Maron Martel, who was the who married uh, a Targaryen named Daenerys Targaryen. Uh, not, of course, not the Daenerys Targaryen, mother dragons, but uh, Daenerys it came about a hundred years before. And she, uh, her brother also married the sister of Meryon. So it was kind of a double marriage, marrying, Dorn marrying into the Targaryens and kind of uniting the houses, bringing Dorn in to the kingdom through marriage rather than through war like had been attempted before and failed. And she built the water garden He built the water gardens for her because, you know, she was kind of, she was from a different part of the country and the, the, the southern heat was kind of hard on her. And she eventually invited uh, nobles and some of the other no- children and other nobles to, uh, to play in the water and to kind of take, take the heat off. Uh, and another day, she uh, another particularly hot day, she decided to invite the children of her grooms and stewards and sort of the, the servants' children, basically, and invite them in. And eventually that extended to all children. And she... And it dawned on her, she had a very, uh, she had sort of an um, aha moment, sort of a wow, she, a new uh, a new perception dawned on her that, uh, picture these children playing in the pools well they're all naked, they're not wearing their clothes when they're playing around in the water obviously. She noted that she couldn't tell the difference between the noble children and the younger children, or and the non-noble children, the, the low-born children. In the water they're all just children, with their clothes off they're just a bunch of kids and they're all innocent and they're all deserving of life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. to say, just like our founding fathers, right? but <laughs> so, well, it's also
0: noted um, that it's a pretty big deal, um, the water gardens, because the Dorns, they hold water very sacred. Uh, water, they don't just drink it up, you know, and pass it around, whatever, you No, know, like they would up in, the north, and say, like in the Stormlands. Uh, it, it's a very precious commodity to the Dornish, so building these Giant water park, if you will, right outside the capital, was a very big deal for them.
1: Probably pretty expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah. Probably costs a lot. So, um, and, and it's a great point that Steve raises up there about the scarcity of water. That's one of the first things that that is uh, brought to us in the beginning of this Ariane chapter. Is she doesn't cry for Doran standing, but she almost does. And she that you know in her in her monologue, she mentions that one of the Dor, uh, Dornish men don't cry partly because of the the scarcity of water and how precious it is—it's it's mm. one of the reasons that they hold back in that regard because of how important it is. So it's almost a religious thing—the the scarcity of water. The it kind of makes me think a little bit of Dune, you know—the the, anyone familiar with Dune, the, the way they treat water out there in the desert yeah. and all that. So, um, yeah. <laughs> so, so I like yeah I like to, I like to make that uh, comparison, but. Uh, so Doran Martell took this takes this very seriously. He he this is why he doesn't go to war or start wars that he can't hope to win because it's not the nobles who the nobles for the most part don't suffer in war. So sure some of them die in battle, some of them get imprisoned, but look at what happens whenever even when like say, take take Bailon Greyjoy for example, he lost his rebellion. He lost two rebellions and still never got spent a day in prison or in anyone's dungeon. His sons suffered for him. They're the ones who died and were in Theon suffered for his father's failed rebellion. He's the one who had to go ward off with the Starks. And then his father treats him like an alien because he was raised by the Starks through his own, you know, no fault of his own. This, this, is, uh, this is symptomatic of what happens all over Westeros with these noble families. The lords play at fighting, and the commoners suffer. They, they get told they have to come, they have to throw down their plow, pick up a spear, and go fight for in some cause they don't really give a shit about, but they're forced to fight.
0: That's how it works.
1: And if they don't fight, well, they get tortured or thrown in jail or killed or hung or whatever. They get treated as... And and their fellows t- treat them like they have no sense of pride. Like, what kind of coward are you not fighting for your lord? Well, you know, it, really getting to the bottom of that system, it really sucks. <laughs> you know, you've got... And this is what Doran has realized. He's realized that we lords shouldn't just spend the lives of our of those people that are sworn to us, of people that we have... Uh, Power over just because we're unhappy with the current state of politics or because we don't get enough taxes or because you know We were slighted in you know this one Lord was given a higher a better seat than us at the last feast I mean these things really don't matter in terms of human life But this is these are the sort of things that wars get started on and by the nobility all the time And and the lives of commoners are thrown away over just these petty squabbles So Doran Martell is a very progressive Ruler in that uh, in that regard, and so he wants. But he also does have this medieval sense of vengeance. He's been nursing this this the sense of vengeance and justice for seventeen some plus years. So I I don't want to paint him as is fully progressive. He still wants blood. He does. He wants revenge. And this whole plot, him sending Arian off uh, on this dangerous mission, is certainly that. This is revenge. This is for the future of Dorne. uh, Both. It's it's both these things. But it's also for the future of Doran's children. He tried to beat this point home to the Sand Snakes, who were, the, for, you know, they are calling for blood. They immediately wanted to go to war and fight and, and get revenge for their father's death. And Doran had them locked up to keep them from being such agitators and to keep them from getting other people upset and, and uh, ready to go fight and, and causing un- unrest in the streets. Um, once he could trust them, once he got them to swear an oath to their father, uh, on, his, on, their, on his grave, then he trusted them more. So we'll get into it. some of that a bit. Uh, we'll save some of that more for for the uh, Dornish Plots episode. Yeah, trying to focus on this chapter here. So, so she leaves. Let's 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 move forward here. She leaves. Arianne uh, and her party. They head for Ghost Hill. Now, Steve, can tell us a little bit about Ghost Hill and uh, its significance, and uh, a little bit. We'll talk about the history of Ghost Hill.
0: Yeah, Ghost Hill is um, it's about a two days' ride, two days and two nights, actually, ride from, uh, you got to remember how huge Dorian is. When you look at the map, it doesn't really look like it's that far away, but it's two days and two nights of just, you know, just traveling across, uh, you know, the, the desert, really, the desert. Even though they are fairly close to the coast, it really is still desert um, in that part of the, part of the world. So it's, it's not the easiest trek to make, but uh, that's one of the reasons probably why it's such a small party also, because a small party can move much faster than, say, a contingency of, like, say, 50. So that makes things a lot easier. And then Ghost Hill is pointed at almost the, the northernmost tip of the eastern side of, uh, of Dorne. So it's a port city, which is very important, with what comes up and what Dorne has actually planned for them to do, and uh, we get into that when we actually go get to doing uh, Ghost Hill, and we start talking about the discussion that they have there, when they start to, uh, trying to dispel, okay, what's rumor, what's fact, that's what their biggest ob- ob- uh, objective is right now, is to find out what is really going on, is that really Aegon, son of uh, Rhaegar, is this really John Connington who's been gone out in exile, exile for like, you know, almost twenty years. So they've got more than nothing but rumors to deal with than actual hard fact, and that's what they're trying to find out what's really going on, and that's their main purpose for this whole trek.
1: Right, and when we, the chapter starts, Doran, uh, Arianne remembers a few things about what what she and, and her father had discussed about some of these rumors, and then these rumors get sort of uh, compared to the rumors that we hear at Ghost Hill. So we have sort of a confluence of different stories and this is the part of the chapter where it all kind of comes together, we can sort of figure out, we can sort of penetrate the mist and, and uh, piece together, not just from these chapters, but from tidbits we get from other chapters, things that Arianne is not privy to. So as readers, we actually know more than she does, um, and we can put a lot of that together. So uh, she's reflecting, before they get there, she's reflecting on what Doran tells her, but we'll just go ahead and push all this together and, and come, kind of combine what she talks about with Doran versus what she talks about with uh, the ladies at Ghost Hill. Now, you'll note that she's greeted by uh, two of the women who were kind of the chiefs there. There's Lady Toland, who is uh, kind of a head, the, the head in charge there, and then she's got her elder daughter and then her younger daughter. The elder daughter is sort of like her mother. She's talkative and and kind of um cut from the same cloth, a uh, more of a sort of standard noblewoman, I suppose you could say standard dorm noblewoman, N- nothing nothing good or bad about that. Just uh, I wanted to paint her as a contrast to he her younger sister, Tiora. Um is it Tiora Tiara, Tiona. I'm looking for her name. Tiona uh, I think is. Tiora. Yeah, it looks like Tiora. Um it doesn't matter. Anyway, she is sort of a I like to consider her a, a, a similar to a character we saw in the first *Hedge Knight* story, which is Daron the Drunkard, who is the character that Dunk finds kind of laying down in a in a pool of wine. He's a, a kind of a drunken Targaryen uh, son, and he's sort of a, he's Maekar's first son, and he's just a total failure as a Targaryen. But we learned that part of the reason he's a failure is because he has these sort of crippling nightmares that. He has dreams of dragons constantly, sort of these predictive, um, future-telling dreams that are always kind of vague. Now, this is something we've only seen from Targaryens. We've seen pretty futuristic dreams before from Sears, people like Jojen Reed. Well, not Sears people who have green dreams like Jojen Reed. Uh, but the dragon dreams are sort of their own category, and we've only seen this from Targaryens. Now, there's other people that have them. You'll say, well, hey, is well? What about some of these other characters that have these dreams? Are they Targaryens too? Like, for example, uh, the woman, the the, the woman, uh, the Jenny of Oldstones, the dwarf woman on the High Heart Hill. Well, there's a, there's there's a strong implication that she's part child of the forest or children of the forest, and, and who knows about what they can do. So, she's a separate category. Let's th- set her aside for example for a minute. We have on the drunkard dreaming of dragons. We have. Aenar Targaryen's maiden daughter dreaming of the doom 12 years before it happened. We have Shireen Baratheon having dreams of dragons eating her. That's an interesting one. She has, of course, got a little bit of dragon blood in her uh, through at least two places. Her great-grandmother would have been a Targaryen, and, of course, the founding member of the Baratheon uh, line was the bastard half-brother of Aegon the Conqueror himself. So there's definitely Targaryen blood in her. Now, the most puzzling one, well, besides Tiora herself, uh, we're not exactly sure where her dragon blood comes from, but there are plenty of examples of Targaryens marrying into Dorne. So, considering she's from a noble house of Dorne, it's not a stretch to say that some connection, uh, some noble house within Dorne married into another house that married into Dorne, or that married into the Targs. There's probably a couple of degrees of separation there, but that's probably what it is. Uh, That's the assumption we're working on now. Uh, The other one is Patchface. Now, how is Patchface, how could Patchface truly, how could he possibly be a Targaryen? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, He comes from Lys. Well, Lys was the final destination of the exiled Aryan Brightflame, also known as Aryan the Monstrous. Now, he's the one exiled, also after the story told in The Hedge Knight, exiled for being kind of an all-around scumbag. Kind of a good example of the a good example of the bad Targaryen, who's not only insane but kind of cruel and uh, thinks too much of himself. This is the guy that, if that story doesn't ring a bell, he's the guy that drank wildfire, thinking it would make him a dragon. Uh, that should ring a bell. Th- he probably had descendants. He was a young man when he went over to Lys, and he certainly was not shy about, um, you know having sex so he quite possibly had a descendant or two and it's a very popular theory on some of the forums that I read uh, and post in that that he is a descendant of Aryan that explains why he has these prophetic dreams sometimes related to dragons So that's our theory we're sticking to it I don't have anything (laughs) else to go on there but but the what's what's perhaps more important than the fact that these dreams exist and kinda cataloging and organizing where these dreams come from is the substance of the dreams themselves that's that's probably more interesting so she has these dreams about dragons dancing, and wherever the dragons dance, people die. Well, there's a couple of ways to interpret that. First of all, we assume that she's telling the truth; that these are real dreams. That these are, you know, we're, we're not we're not just going to throw these aside and assume that oh, these are just stupid dreams, you're savvy. They don't mean anything. I, they they probably mean something. I don't think George just threw that in there for no reason. So what do they mean? Well, a couple of interpretations. Could it mean literal dragons dancing? Could it mean that Danny loses one of her dragons, one of them gets snagged by Euron, by the horn, by Victorian, and that causes them to fight each other or her or some sort of scenario there? Or is it a metaphor for Aegon and Daenerys, the two dragons, the two dragon mm. claimants? Does it mean they're gonna fight? I don't know. Those are those are entirely possible. I think it could and it could even mean both. Uh so, I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Um,
0: I'm trying to lean more, leave more heavily on the second one, though. Because, you know, yeah. dig-
1: Me too. I, I, there's a lot of... I agree with you, Steven, there's a lot to a lot later in this chapter that kind of reinforces that notion because uh, we've all, I think a lot of us readers have sort of taken for granted the fact that Daenerys is one day going to show up with her dragons and just start kicking ass, take the throne, save Westeros from the others, does that really, though? Does that really sound like something George would write to you? I mean, the happy ending, uh, sort of. Danny just comes and saves the day. No. Nah. For those of you watching us in the video cast, we're both shaking our heads, going, "No, <laughs> no. <laughs> that's not George R. Martin style, is it? No, 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 no. A bittersweet ending. It won't be a happy ending to the series. It'll be a bittersweet ending. There'll be some good and some bad. It'll be like real life. You know, there'll be some good, some bad." And some things that make a scratch our heads, some unsolved mysteries, some mysteries that are solved, etc. It'll be the whole gamut. But I think that, uh, I don't think, so I think that this is a bit of a wake-up call for some of us who have been expecting that. Arianne's thoughts on Danny are not, she thinks kind of darkly of, of her. She thinks of her as, she thinks of the word murder, specifically when thinking of how Viserys was killed. She thinks, how could that have happened? Damon Sand has a very realistic attitude towards it. She says, how could the Dragon Queen Daenerys have let this happen to her brother? How could she have let him be killed by this call? And we're just sitting here, like, us readers are like, how the hell could she have stopped him? <laughs> what was she supposed to do? This is Khal Drogo we're talking about. I mean, no. he violated oh, a very... Him. Yeah. I mean, come on. So... So, but, you, but what's important there is not the fact that this is kind of ridiculous, like, how could she have possibly stopped him, but the fact that this is where Arianne's thoughts are going. She has, maybe she sees Daenerys as a potential rival. Maybe she sees her as a threat. Uh, she doesn't know her own brother that well. Quentin, she also has sort of semi, semi-dark thoughts about her own brother, and, and Damon Sand calls her out on it, she says, when she talks about, we've skipped ahead a little here, but it's okay. Uh, when she thinks about Quentin, she thinks, of course I want him to come back. Don't I? Uh, for a long time, she thought that he she viewed him as the guy that was being put above her. She thought that Quentin was going to be up-jumped above her. She thought that her father was setting her aside to give Quentin Dorne over her. <laughs> well, she's half right. She was, he was setting Quentin up to be the ruler of Dorne, but that's because he was setting her up to be queen of Westeros, and she didn't know that. But now that's all gone. She can't be queen of Westeros now. At least not in, at least not by that plan, because Viserys is dead. Now, yes. but could she become queen by marrying this Aegon? Hmm, maybe. So if she has the notion to be queen, and, and, and her thoughts on this aren't entirely illuminating, uh, she doesn't outright think sure would be nice to be queen, but she has shown some ambition in the past. This is a bit of a... We're getting into conspiracy theory territory here, but I think there's a chance that she might want to try and get egg on you know get him in bed seduce him, maybe marry him, and be you know if she thinks she's the real he's the real deal and has a chance to succeed, she could be queen by marrying him and of course you know of course uh, let's forget for a minute this the possibility that she'd be marrying you know the, the son of her you know aunt's child there, so that's a little bit of a a little bit of inbreeding, but it's certainly not outside of, you know, Westerosi nobility. Even that's, that's not as bad as what the Targaryens would do. Certainly it's not that far off of what Tywin did. Tywin married his own cousin. You know, it's not that strange. But, uh, mm-hmm. it, it's certainly... So it's, so it's something that needs to be considered. And it's not something that Doran Martell necessarily wants other people finding out about, because I'm sure it's thought may have crossed his mind. He's, he thinks, every, thinks of everything. He knows how his daughter is. He knows she's a seductress and that she's... Um, you know, not, not afraid to use that, ar- that weapon. So, maybe you have a situation where Arianne sets herself up to be, a- to be in, in a conflict with her own brother. Now, of course you're saying, you're going to say to me, Hey Aziz, but Quentin's dead. What, how could she be in conflict with her dead brother? Well, that's a really, really important notion that I can't hammer away at enough. No one in Dorne knows Quentin's dead yet. They all still think he's alive. So any thoughts of of what would happen now because Quentin is dead need to be set aside. They can be we can, we can think of those as as far as predicting where the story goes. But as far as predicting the actions of these Dornish characters, we we can't forget that they all think Quentin's still alive. They they think he's bringing Daenerys the dragons potentially. Um although although Arya herself had a lot of doubts in her own mind about that. She thinks really Quentin riding a dragon that just doesn't seem right. He's yeah. just too He's just too much of a, like, regular dude. He's not – he doesn't look like a dragon rider. He's just kind of plain looking. He's, like, kind of square. You know, he's, he's, he just doesn't look the part. You know, and a, a little of that, I think, is just vanity on her part. But it's also, you know, true. He's not going to a ride a dragon. He's he's dead. And uh, he's not he – he wasn't really cut from that cloth. He's not really – we saw inside his head a bunch of times. He's really he, – he, he's kind of a – i just i hate to use the term but he's kind of a wannabe he's just really he tries really hard but he just doesn't have the skills he, he's not oh I agree. He's a fighter he's not he's got he's got all the right attitudes he's brave he's he, he he's he takes on uh he takes it very he takes on a lot you know uh of responsibility for himself despite his age he he, he really feels like feels like a lot of the future of Dorn is resting on his shoulders so he's a good he's a great he was a great kid had a lot of uh lots of like about him but he certainly comes up a little short in the ability range, and, and I think uh, Arianne is aware of that, even though they didn't spend a lot of time together as kids. So, uh, but let's see, backing up to the news, what happens at Ghost Hill. Uh, there's a lot of interesting news that comes out. Uh, a lot of it deal, dealing with the success of the Golden Company, uh, how much territory they've taken already. So um, we're told about, several different castles falling uh, that they've taken, and part of that is the, f- the speed and discipline of the Golden Company, and part of that is how spread out they were. We were, we're told that the Valentines sort of, uh, they were scared the Valentine fleet that dropped the Golden Company off there on the uh, in the Stormlands was kind of scattered by storms, so and the Valentines were kind of quick they weren't really that interested in the Golden Company's success. They just wanted to get the Golden Company away from Essos. They didn't want them to be hooking up with Daenerys, or being used to uh, remember that um, one thing that we learn in Dance of Dragons is that the Golden Company was possibly going to get hired uh, by the Triarchs of Volantis in secret to go attack the Red Temple and kill Bonero, that red priest who was kind of calling for the slaves to unite. And the Volantines didn't want to openly attack him because of the religious significance. Uh, Going into open war with a religious figure would be bad news. But if they can take him out, Without anyone knowing who sent him, who who started that whole thing, and they make, they they have plausible deniability. So the volunteers wanted to get the Golden Company out of there. That's kind of an aside, but uh, so they're dropping them off all over the coast. Whenever wherever their ships land, they drop them off. So mm-hmm. and the and the Golden Company, being disciplined soldiers like they are, they just they do what they need to do. They take they they go ahead and start making moves. They start taking castles, accepting surrenders. Now, Steve, why don't you? Uh, why don't we do a little segue here? Why don't you describe some of these castles and some of the places that the uh, Golden Company has gone ahead and grabbed a hold of and, and places, they Okay. Um, Sounds like
0: they've yeah. taken about
1: two-thirds of Stormland, doesn't it?
0: No, I mean, yeah, well, they're definitely they're definitely making a huge dent down there, um, but the only one, is, of course, being the, the most impregnable is the only thing they really haven't taken in the area, and that's, of course, uh, the house of Seat Baratheon. Um, yeah, but, yeah, general. I mean... But, yeah, and they, they, I mean, they, they've, taken, they've taken Tarth, the entire region of Tarth, that's a big deal, and they've cut a huge swath of land, and I'm looking at the map right now, and it's like, I mean, about, probably, if you were to measure it in proportion to Dorne, it'd probably be at least almost a quarter of Dorne that they've yeah. taken in this yeah. small time frame, and that's a huge undertaking, um, which also kind of brings up, you know, we got to remember, you know, when we did our Golden Company uh, podcast, these guys are extremely dedicated. They're extremely loyal to, to, to no end. I mean, but they won't break a treaty. Um, yeah, yeah. Except that one time, but that's a whole different story. <laughs> <laughs> you
1: know, they, the one time they broke a treaty was because they're, they're finally, they got to kind of get to do what they had set out to do, that their founder set out to do so long ago, take Westeros back. It's kind of the one thing that would get them to change their, to break their word.
0: Yeah, and that's and that is their that is their goal. That has been their mission statement from the get-go. Which also kind of brings into play is like I that's also kind of got me questioning on who Aegon really is, because the company he's keeping was actually founded by the Blackfires. So it makes me wonder, is Aegon actually a Blackfire? And if that's the case, you know, is this with John Cyington? Or if it is John Contington, he would be aware of the fact that this is a Blackfire. So it, it raises a lot it's of questions.
1: Malaria have lied to him as well. There's yeah, there's so many different possibilities there, and uh, we can't get too deep into that. That's that's a great story, that's but we'll we'll get lost on that one if we start on that one. Yeah, uh, so if you guys wonder, we'll, we'll we'll do a podcast on that topic one of these days. We've got so many we want to do. <laughs> yeah.
0: So yeah, you can have mom.
1: I believe one of the direct quotes from from the Tolans on the issue of. How much, territory of the, how much territory of the Stormlands has been taken by the Golden Company. It's something like, most of Cape Wrath and half of the Stepstones. Um, so, but there's a, there's a little bit of information from there that we can, uh, kind of a tidbit from, the, that's, that's an aside. And that's, Steve mentioned Tarth being taken, since Brienne's father is possibly a hostage in his own castle. He might be dead. And perhaps more tragic is the notion that the Rainwood has been taken, and the Rainwood is where Davos has his seat. So Davos still has a few sons and his wife sitting there. They may have been taken as well. Now, it's unlikely that they would just be killed. It would be, be very strange for the Golden Company to just go around uh, executing the, the children of nobles. Because remember, they want to they win here. They want to they be regarded as legitimate. They want to take the Iron Throne. You're not going to win the support of other houses if you're just going around slaughtering people. So, they have to have some legitimacy, so they, they're going to be, they're going to hold those people hostage, they're going to treat them well, most likely, because they want mm. them to support them. They don't want to, they don't want to make a new enemies. They've already got, they've got plenty enough of those as it is. So. Yeah, exactly. And uh,
0: one thing that was interesting, that uh, they made a point to me, let say, even Greenstone on its island, all take, was one of the ones taken, and they were like, you know, we want the Greenstone, <laughs> but I'm thinking... Probably more or less for a, uh, a strategic or maybe it's a I'm not even sure what the right word is uh, there's a strategic reasoning as to why they would actually probably want the greenstone I don't know what it is but it, be a, maybe, is it, be a, a,
1: it could be a way for them to escape like an escape um, but it also could be just a, a function of where they got these particular troops got dropped off. Remember the volunteers were trying to just drop them off wherever they could, and if the volunteers dropped some of them off on greenstone. Well, that's where they were. So they were like, "Well, let's just make the most of this. We'll, we'll conquer this." And you know, there probably aren't a lot of people here, and not a lot to defend. Mm. So it's probably pretty easy for them. Uh, so let's see here. Um, other pieces of news: we've got uh, the notion of elephants in in the rainwood. That's this is kind of a piece of news. And that's remind. That's a reminder that the Golden Company has brought elephants with them. And elephants in Westeros is kind of a new thing. So no. it'd be real interesting to see how the elephants in in, in uh in our history in in real world history elephants have been uh are a huge foil often to cavalry especially cavalry who are not used to elephants because horses are scared of elephants <laughs> that's a yep. pretty straightforward thing horses Aren't used to seeing animals that are larger than them, and or yeah. elephants. Not, not that much larger, much larger than horses, and it's just—it's not just the sight of them, but it's the smell of them. Apparently, that, that sets them off. Yeah. This is this is speaking from a real-world standpoint. Yeah, so I'm assuming really that, beautiful. yeah. So assuming that, that, that the horses in George R. R. Martin's world and elephants are going to work in a similar fashion. So, so that could set up some interesting conflicts of cavalry versus elephants, and seeing how the Westerosi captains deal with the re- the, the reactions of their own horses. To uh, these strange beasts, which probably most of the West, probably Westerosi for the most part have only heard of elephants. It was probably it was probably kind of like uh, not as strange as seeing a dragon, but it's up there. Like wow, what is this thing? You know, it's something they've only heard of. Uh, but outside of stories of, outside of news regarding the Golden Company and the wars themselves you've got the sort of supernatural and other tidbits of news that come out. Uh, stuff that we didn't hear from Doran Martell. For example, we have, we have the, we have tales of the general situation, uh, as it pertains to the narrow sea and the Sea of Doran, and, and, uh, what's going on in the waters around the Step Zones. A lot of pirate activity. We've got, we've got, um, ships from Mir, and ships from Lice, and ships from the Ironborn, and ships from Pirates, uh, as well as a certain, quote-unquote, Lord of the Waters, who set himself up at a place called is Deep. Well, here at uh, History of Westeros podcast, as well as over most of the forums that I've read, the 99% guess is that Lord, this Lord of the Waters is none other than Orain Waters, the bastard of Driftmark, who was given the title Master of Ships by Cersei, and was given the ability, given uh, money, enough money to build ten new warships. Well... It's mentioned by Lady Tolan that this new pirate cat king has actual warships. Not pirate, not normal pirate ships, like large warships. And we're told that Orane Waters went out to sea right after. So putting two plus two together, a guy with real warships, Orane Waters disappears. His nickname, he calls himself Lord of the Waters. I mean, it's pretty obvious, I think. Uh, so, so we don't know if he's actually a turned pirate, but we know that House Tolan thinks he's turned pirate. Perhaps he's waiting for Stannis or Daenerys or somebody to kind of ally to, but he's certainly done with the Lannisters and Tyrells. <laughs> so, we don't it's know if he's, a lot of a lot of possibilities for him. Him lending his strengths to somebody could be pretty significant, because uh, ten large warships, that's a pretty big deal, considering how many uh, how much of the general naval strength of Westeros was destroyed over the past several years.
0: Yeah. And it's, it, it should be noted that, uh, I mean, they make a pretty, you know, uh, a big point that, say, you know, it's best that they probably didn't actually come in by sea as they could have because it's such a treacherous area right now. I mean, they mentioned Krakens are uh, attacking the, the crippled ships.
1: Yeah, or actual Krakens. You know, the Krakens is a metaphor for Greyjoys, and for, since the Greyjoys are in charge and the, over there in the Iron Islands, when you say Krakens are in the water, you think that's a metaphor for Greyjoys. But that's not the case here. We've, we've been, real Krakens have been mentioned a couple times throughout the series. There's various reports on an Ebeneez Whaler being pulled down by mm. a Kraken. Um, and we're told there's a couple <laughs> of stories of, of dragons large enough they could pluck Krakens from the water way back when. So real Krakens are a real thing in Martin's world. They're not just a story, they're not just the Greyjoys. And the other reason we're so sure that this is an actual Kraken is that in the same little anecdote, where there's there's ironborn mentioned and krakens mentioned. So it doesn't really make sense that you would call them krakens and then call them ironborn, especially in the same same sort of thought. Uh, So these are real krakens pulling ships under. Um, And I think that that speaks to just two two inferences I can make from that. One is that I think that these krakens might might be related just to the general return of magic to the world. We've got dragons coming back. We've got direwolves appearing south of the wall. We've got magic working like for people like Melisandre that didn't work before. We've got the Pyromancers having their wildfire spells work faster. So all these things, it sort of speaks to George's, George's uh, comments about how magic is somewhat seasonal. We don't fully understand it. Mm-hmm. But perhaps this is an aspect of that. The Kraken's returning to the world, returning to that. But it's also yeah. could be just an aspect of there's a lot of blood in the water because of all the pirate activity and all these ships getting sunk and all these people falling into the sea and all these all these wars being fought yeah because others, you the blood is drawing into the surface right that's what she says and that that would make sense with that ese whaler being dragged under an Ebeneese whaler dragging you know, for a whaler doesn't kill a whale and then haul it on board <laughs> that's too large a whaler a whale is too large for that what a whaler would do is they'd kill a whale and then haul it behind them in their ship. So the whale would be dragging in the water. So that mm. would be, you know, that's a pretty large piece of bait. You know, <laughs> you think of fishermen using minnows for bait. Well, imagine a whale used this bait. Well, they caught something they didn't want to catch. Mm. Uh, so, but the other interpretation, and this is a lot more subtle and sneaky, and I like it a lot because just cause it's clever and it's kinda cool. If remember Salador San mentions uh, that Lord Celtigar on Claw Isle, just north of uh, Blackwater Bay, has supposedly a horn that can summon krakens from the deep and Saladar Sen says to Davos at one point, he says, and this is a horn that I am not having and his wines that I am not drinking because Davos argued against this plan to attack him. Well, this horn, maybe Saladar San really did he, he may have decided to attack Claw Isle on his own. He uh, left Standis's, uh employ so the fact that Stannis didn't want to go through with his plan to attack Claw Isle may mean nothing to him. Salador San is on his own now, and he knows that Claw Isle is rich and weakly held, a tempting target for a pirate, wouldn't you think? So he may have, he may have gotten his horn. He may have even used it. Now, the problem with that argument is why the hell would Salador San, a guy who has a bunch of ships, I don't know why he would summon krakens, and I don't know why he would think that's a good idea. But hey, maybe he does. You know, I, don't know. I don't know his mind. Maybe he did that. Maybe he got a hold of it and his, someone else blew it. But I don't know. Anyway, it's just a kind of a fun little side note there that maybe the reason there's krakens around is because of this horn. And maybe that is a segue or a preview to what will happen if, if uh, someone blows this dragon horn with Daenerys' dragons. Maybe it will not have the desired effect. Maybe it will just summon them. Uh, but control them? No, it'll just summon them. And I don't know if you want to summon a dragon or a kraken to you if you can't control it. <laughs> it doesn't sound very. That doesn't sound too smart. <laughs> Leave the is horn blowing. Yeah. <laughs> so So uh, other pieces of news that we get from from Ghost Hill. Uh, let's see here. Well, it's not it's not news so much as it is a historical the historical significance of. The sigil of House Toland. Uh, oh, yeah. there's a yeah. green dragon eating its tail. Now, uh, so let's talk about what the significance of that. Ghost Hill, House Toland. Uh, when, during the War of Conquest, when Aegon was conquering Seven Kingdoms, he sent his sister wife Rhaenys down to Dorne to sort of, uh, you know, start off the, the conquest, sort of take the measure of the Lords of Dorne, see if they would just surrender. Say hey, you know here's my dra- here's uh, my- here's my sister on a dragon. Surrender to her, or this or you're going to get more of this. Well, the Dornish people, they didn't submit. They they ran all over the place, hiding, not giving, not presenting a real foe to fight. Sort of doing the guerrilla tactics. The way they the way they set, spell it out, they kept the dragon chasing its the dragons chasing themselves or chasing shadows and and not having any. Not having anything to eat, not having anything to latch on, so to the point where they were—it's—it's it's like they're chasing their own tail. So that's the, thats the sigil here, the green dragon getting its own tail. Well, I, as a side note, I think that's a clue that Meraxes was green. Meraxes is a dragon that Rainie's rode. Uh, so if there—if this sigil is a—is a sign of of that that uh that series of episodes with Rainie's. Ch- Going all over Dorne, trying to get them to surrender, and mostly finding empty keeps, sand and stone, nothing, no, no people. Uh, so, uh, just a little bit of a, a little bit of backstory there on, on where House Tully gets its own sigil from. So, of course, that means that their sigil is either either they changed their existing sigil or they became a, a house. They kind of rose to prominence during the conquest there because, you know, a lot of ancient houses are really proud of their sigils. So, changing an ancient sigil doesn't seem all that likely, but. If they were a more recent house, or if they formed around that time, makes sense. Is, that would make a lot more sense. Uh, so, let's see, is there any more for Ghost Hill, or are we ready to... I think we're ready to go into the after, the conversation so are after. Yeah, I think we're done with Ghost Hill. Uh, one thing that we did miss that came earlier, it, it isn't really important to have it in, in sequence, but uh, Ariane's thoughts on the the armies of Doran. and this is interesting. We learn that Doran has actually massed a lot of his troops. Uh, Lord Ironwood is sitting in the Bone Way, which is the remember there's two mountain passes that connect Doran to the rest of the Seven Kingdoms. Uh, the eastern pass is called the the Stone Way or the Bone Way, uh, and it's Lord Ironwood has about 10,000 men sitting in there, sitting there waiting to hear news, waiting. <coughs> for the sign. And the sign, uh, we learn a little bit more about how nuanced Doran is. If the word, if the one word that Lauren Ironwood receives is dragons, then it means unleash your men, which in this case will be in the Dornish marches, which is about the only spot left to conquer for the, uh, because this, the Golden Company has conquered most of the rest of the Stormlands. So if, if Dorn all of a sudden descends on the Stormlands and the Dornish marches there, which is basically the area that, that right outside of these passes, uh, then the Stormlands will have been swallowed up by two different armies that may be uh, about to join forces. As far as the other pass, that is uh, where Lord Fowler has his 10,000 men or so, and if they were to be unleashed, they would come out around near where uh, Horn Hill and uh, where Sam, Samuel Tarley's father is. And they'd be in mm-hmm. position to maybe even strike out at Old Town or potentially even Highgarden. Uh, and, of course, yeah, don't High forget, Highgarden, High Garden, normally Highgarden is more than a match for the Dornishmen because they have much more men. But right now they're facing a huge problem, which is they've got ironborn all over their shores. The, the ironborn have conquered the Shield Islands, and they're raiding all over the coast, southern mm-hmm. coast there. So their attention is... Um, is focused on their west coast and in King's Landing, where Mace has about half of their strength getting ready to await the result of Marjorie's trial. And of course, they also yeah. have the, the Golden Company that they're aware of. So the Tyrell forces, as large as they are, they are facing potentially a three front war. Yeah. Maybe um, uh, four. It could be as many as four. Imagine this they're fighting the Ironborn, they're fighting uh, the Golden Company. They're fighting, potentially, the Dornishmen, and they're potentially going to have uh, blood on their hands in King's Landing. If the trial doesn't go the way they want it to, and they try to execute Margaery, <laughs> Makes Tyrell's not going to be having that. He's going to send no. his army in there to try and get her out of there. And don't forget, Cersei allowed the Faith to take up arms again. So they've got their own little army there. What? So if, if you can could, you could see a situation where it's Tyrell army fighting against the, the, the Faith. So, yeah. And if also,
0: if you look at the map, it, uh, all these areas that they have taken are literally probably no more than, say, like, a week's ride from King's Landing itself, which is very scary, I'm sure, for the Lannisters and its slash Baratheons um, yeah. in King's Landing right now. They've got enough problems as it is.
1: Politically, too. As far as their hold on the crown, it doesn't look good to have an enemy so close by mm. uh, that's it's, it's dominating and, and, and gaining so much but they're kind of stuck because the political situation in King's Landing is so bad it's hard it's really hard for as bad as Mace Tyrell, Mace Tyrell's not a great leader of course we got to remember that too. So he's got we've got the Tyrell forces kind of being led by this guy who's got kind of a bad reputation as a leader or at least an indefinite re- uh, reputation as a leader. Certainly uh, hasn't done anything particularly special. Uh, so it looks they're they're basically sorely tested at this point. Um, so that bodes really well for the Dornish people and for their outlook. They certainly would be able to get the element of surprise. If, if, the, if the armies are unleashed from the passes there, they're going to be able to do a lot of damage before anyone is able to do anything about it, because you better believe it's a secret. Those armies, those armies are well-concealed in those passes. The, Dor- the, the, the Tyrells and the Stormlanders don't have any sort of regular reconnaissance that they're able to send down in there. That's just not... It's just too far back. It's too, it's too remote. It's too harsh of a land. So, so that's interesting. Now, remember what I said about the nuance and the message. If Ariane sends the message, war, which you would think means go to war, it actually means wait. So this is a sort of a tr- the trickiness of their coded messages that they're dealing with. Um, so <clears throat> Ariane's immediate. Let's move on to uh, what happens next. We've got Ariane leaving Ghost Hill on a very short boat ride. Um, now, we talked about how dangerous the seas are, but this is such a short boat ride, they're not too worried about it, and they're going on a, a swift ship. So they're only on a ship for about a day and a half, two days, and they're, of course, by the the chapter ends before she this, this boat ride is even over, uh, they're going to be, or does it, I forget. Anyway, it's not important. They haven't reached John Connington yet by the end of the chapter. They're going to be getting closer. But she's got the, next, the, the rest of the chapter is mostly her dealing with Damon Sand and then her having a lot of thoughts after that, the, the dealings with Damon Sand because he kind of says a few things that kind of strike at her and kind of rub her the wrong way and get her thinking. Mm. Um, a, a lot about her own self. He doesn't believe her about some of her attitudes. He kind of questions her on some of her, her own ambitions. Like, she, she talks about how she, she wishes Quentin would come back, and he says, do you? You know, something to, that, something to that regard. Like, are you sure you want Quentin to come back? Because he knows that she was just plotting to, to advance past him, uh, to, to advance past her own brother, because she thought that her own brother was being set above her. So she's shown that she's willing to, to get really dirty when her own ambitions are threatened or her own, what she considers her do, which at that point was Dorn. So, so he, he's, you know, remember that Damon is a very sort of no-nonsense, kind of narrow-view kind of guy. He's saying, look, you just, you just were working against your own brother, you know, just not so long ago. How can you just sit here and say you wish he would come back and do all these things? I mean, you were his enemy, you know, sort of, in, so to speak, not that long ago. Uh, so, so she starts to think about herself, and, and you can see from her own inner monologue, her thoughts of Viserys, despite these notions that he was kind of insane, although not a lot of people know that, really, to be fair, are sort of positive, and her, and her thoughts on Daenerys were sort of negative. So here we're seeing, once again, uh, something I talked about before a little bit, is how she, Dany, does not necessarily have, the you know, they're not going to roll out the red carpet for her. There's a lot of people that don't want her to come. They don't like her. Egon might be an example of that. You know, at first he's thinking that she's a potential ally. But if she sees herself as the real ruler, because she's, you know, the one that birthed the dragons, she doesn't believe that Aegon is really her, brother, her, uh, her brother's child, a lot of re- plus her visions that she'd have to slay some false dragon. Who else could this false dragon be? It's probably Aegon. So, a lot of reasons that Daenerys may not trust Aegon, a lot of reasons they may not get along, and a lot of reasons that other people might not trust Daenerys. Here's a person that, from their point of view, has killed her, maybe it may have something to do with the killing of her own brother, might be insane, like her father, Ares, has done all kinds of brutal things to these slavers, not knowing that the slavers deserved it all, of course, Mm -hmm. uh, from our point of view. And eventually they're going to find out that Quentin was roasted by one of her dragons. Now we know that she had nothing at all to do with that. She wasn't even there. That was Quentin's doing. That was all his own fault. His own fault entirely. But... They don't know that. They have no idea. They're going to probably find a way to blame it on her, yeah. uh, considering well, all the other things they know about her.
0: And they also touch back on, uh, you know, with her complicit involvement in the death of the series, That's frowned upon very heavily in Westeros because yeah. you know, they could be called kinslaying.
1: You're right. That's a very good point. So she she might be she might have a very dark reputation as being involved in killing her own brother. That's very very. Uh, very bad as far as uh, your political view of people, being a Kinslayer. It doesn't really get much worse than that. Mm. Um, So, if you take that and you spin it out a little further, um, Daenerys has a lot of potential challenges to face. Now, there's a, a, a funny little, some very subtle things that happen in this chapter that I want to review real quick that... I think maybe foreshadowing and maybe just reading in too much. Now we'll see. Let's, let's, let's deal with these one at a time. The first one is uh, when, a- when Arianne is at Ghost Hill, uh, Lady Toland or her daughter mentions uh, in passing that they have some books on dragons and how, you know, how Dra- Dorn dealt with dragons, things like that. Arianne passes on the chance to read these. This is the second time she's passed on a chance to read about dragons. Now, it's kind of understandable this time, because she's not going to be there very long. She doesn't have time to really study these books in depth. Um, And, you know, maybe she's not that interested in reading in the first place. But she was in prison in the Tower with a book on dragons, and she didn't read that either. So I don't think you should take too much out of that uh, notion as far as it goes literally, or as far as it goes as far as her as a character. But as far as a literary reference, it's twice that she has not... Taking the time to educate herself about the dragons. Now, that could mean, uh, from a subtle literary sense, that she is not going to understand the proper use of, uh, or understand the proper um, way these things are going to play out. She's not going to understand the notion of dragons, she's not going to understand the way they work, she's not going to understand how to strategize these things. I'm being very vague here, and it's on purpose, because I don't there's, it, it's, it's a very subtle thing in the first place. It's hard to, like, be too distinct and direct about what we think it means. I just wanted to kind of uh, bring it to your attention uh, so that you all have an opportunity to think about it. Now, so the second one is the also related to dragons. All these things are related to dragons. That's partly why it's interesting, partly why they're related. Is when they're playing cyvas on the ship. She plays two games of cyvas. One is with Damon Sand, and he taunts her. He 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 points out that she overuses the dragon piece. She says to him, Hey, you've got hey, princess, you know you have other pieces besides the dragon. Try using them. Now, to me, that says that's that to me that's a reference about Daenerys. Daenerys is the one at this point who is relying, even though she's not really using her dragons too much, she's sort of relying on them a bit. She's sort of relying on the fact that once they're grown, they're going to be the thing that people can't stand against, and they're going to be the thing that people are going to have to bow before. That's the thing that really sets her apart. That's her power. And she's mostly right, except that dragons don't do you a damn good at ruling. Actually keeping the peace, they help a little bit. But as far as actually bringing nobles in line, look at what's happening in Marine. They're scheming against her. They're plotting against her. They're killing people in the night. They're murdering her people. They're, they're doing all sorts of stuff. Um, so what I think that passage tells us is that the dragons are not enough. This chapter tells us a lot. Um, The things I mentioned before about how Daenerys isn't just going to have the red carpet rolled out for her like a lot of us thought they would, like Danny would just come in and start kicking ass. Well, folks, dragons are not enough. Dragons are not going to do it. She needs political support, and as things are right now, who's going to support her? Who in Westeros right now is going to be like, oh, good, Daenerys Targaryen, let's jump on her back? Well, some people might do it just because she's shown that she's strong, and they might not want to be on the losing side. But as far as, like, some sense of loyalty or as far as, oh, she's awesome. She's the one I want to follow because she's a great leader. There's none of that. She hasn't really, she doesn't have that reputation. She's this conqueror of Slaver's Bay who may have killed her own brother, who may be mad like her father. George is really trying to show us that perception is reality and that our perception as readers of Daenerys are very different than some of the other characters' perception of her. Some of them don't really even have a perception of her at all, to be honest. Like a lot of people in the West, uh, you know, people in the, people on the western side of Westeros, they hardly even know her name. Um, yeah, yeah. Some of them don't even know who she is. I mean, when we see, we learn that from one of Davos's chapters when he's in that kind of um, seedy tavern there, in, in the sisters when he's when he meets with Lord Borrell on his way to White Harbor. Uh, he's the one, these people are trying to name, give her name, they can't remember her name, they throw all of these Targaryen names, and none of them are right, Daenerys, and finally, Davos corrects him and says Daenerys, you know, blah 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 blah, so, it's, it's important to kind of keep in mind other people's perceptions of the whole situation, and especially the, the other rulers. Daenerys isn't even a blip on some people's radar, and those that she is a blip on, they, most of them don't have good opinions of her, um, so that's really big, and that's a, one of the big takeaways from this chapter is, is that Danny is going to have has a lot of challenges to face as far as political acceptance. Not only the fact, not not just the fact that she's also that she's a woman, and Westeros has never been ruled by a woman before. That's a that's kind of a a, a hurdle she has to get over in terms of you know male uh, the patriarchal society that she's faced with. Uh, so. So I think that's just you know you can't really say enough about that and how, how important it is. Agreed. Now the third pit the third bit of dragon foreshadowing uh, and this this doesn't include the dreams that we talked about. It's and this more speaks to Aegon's perhaps hidden identity. When when Doran Martell presses the piece into her hand and uh, the the Syvas piece into her hand and says, "This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we." This is the vengeance that we've been yearning for for so long. The piece isn't red or not described, it's onyx. Uh, Now remember the symbology of the dragons. True Targaryens are red, quote-unquote, red dragons. The fires are the black dragons. So, remember that their sigil, Targaryen's symbol is a red dragon on a black field, and the Blackfyre symbol, they just re- they just inverted it, a, red, a black dragon on a red field. So, this could be a clue that since Aryan is being sent on this mission, that, that he is a black dragon, that Aegon is a Blackfyre. We, we t- we've touched on this a bit, and we may have to dedicate a whole podcast to it, because I know some of you guys are really teased by that whole notion, like, how do you guys know that he's a Blackfyre? Where does this come from? Well... Uh, yeah, we can't get too much into it. But there is a lot of You just have to trust us if you, if you haven't heard us talk about it before uh, and hold off on until we get to that in another episode. But there's a lot of evidence for it. It's very sneaky evidence, a lot of very tiny clues here and there. George is just so very subtle. And some of these things are so subtle that we're not even sure if that's what he's even talking about. But there's too many of them that they could all just be coincidence. And some of them are very direct. So, like I said, we'll save that for another time. But uh, yeah. but it is important as far as even for for this chapter, taking note of the fact that it's a black dragon piece, not the cyvass piece could have been white, George could have called it just called it by a number of names, but he specifically called it an onyx cyvass piece he specifically pointed that out he could have just said the dragon piece you know but he pointed out onyx cyvas piece, pressed into her hand blah 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 very dis- very distinct and detailed. I think that's pretty interesting now. I think we've covered most of the chapter, but there's one character we didn't talk about at all who is very important, and I think we could probably devote the rest of this episode to him, and that's Darkstar. Very important character. Um, Now, one thing we didn't know that's not explicitly said in the text, it's not explicitly said uh, even in this chapter, but it is explicitly said in the World of Ice and Fire app, and, of course, that's an official app. It's, it's can- everything in there is canon, uh, barring typos. Uh, but it's stated that Arianne did sleep with Darkstar. She had a bit of an affair with him. And she, very early in the chapter, she thinks about him and how he was, ironically, the only person to sort of get away unscathed from, from their failed attempt to crown Marcella, And he was the one guy who probably most deserved to be punished because he obviously he sliced Marcel's face open in an attempt to kill her, which was an attempt to start open war with the Iron Throne, which we don't know why he wanted open war with the Iron Throne. We're not really sure why Darkstar would want such a thing. Perhaps he's working with somebody else. Perhaps he's an agent of Varys. Perhaps he's an agent of who knows. Perhaps he's just kind of half mad and wants to start a war so he can make a name for himself by... Killing a bunch of Northerners, or rather, you know, Northerners—not Northerners as in Northmen, but people that are north of Dolperna, <laughs> which is everyone else. And uh, so, let's talk about Darkstar. Let's talk about a little bit about his castle, about who he is, and yeah. about his the uh, ramifications of what he has done and where he's at. Let's see. We could talk about High Hermitage, his castle, for a minute. Steve, do you have some notes on High Hermitage?
0: Uh, not not in front of me, but I'm, I just looked up his uh, page on the wiki, and uh, yeah, he's actually uh, he is a Dane. He's Gerald Dane. Um, you really no, oh
1: yeah, real quick to jump in there, uh, he's a Dane, but he's a Dane from the cadet branch of House Dane. There's the Danes of Starfall. Kind of a, as a parallel example, you have the Lannisters of castle Rock, and you have the Lannisters of Lannisport. Now, mm-hmm. the Lannisters of Castle Rock are the main. There's the main ones: Cersei, Jamie, Tyrion, Tywin, and their predecessors. Lannisters of Lannisport are sort of a lesser branch of Lannisters. Now, so 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 uh, Gerald Dane comes from the knightly house of Danes, which is. Let me give a quick primer on the types of the levels of nobility, because I know that's confusing to some people. And uh, yeah, so we have we have at the highest level, you have the you know the king or the queen, and then you have the great houses. Of which there are seven, maybe arguably eight, depending on the current state of affairs. And those are usually the lords paramount, the lord of the, the lord of the west, the lord of Dorne, the lord of Stormlands, etc. And now below that you have the noble houses in that range. Some examples from the north would be uh, the Manderleys, oh. the Karstarks, uh, the Boltons, the Dustins. Mm-hmm. And then a level below that you have knightly houses. Now Knightly houses uh, are, basically that's like a high level knight, a landed knight. Now landed knights can have a much smaller fief, but, but some of these like major castles are ruled by a knight. Uh, an example would be this one. High Hermitage is ruled by the knight of High Hermitage, which in this case, this current case is Darkstar, Sir Gerald Dane. So the northern equivalent, because remember they don't have knights in the north, is a master. So Hellman Tal- Sir Hellman Tallhart is a, ma- is the master of Torin Square, and Galbart Glover, who's not a knight, is just the master, even though noted that I called Sir Hellman Tallhart a sir. That's, it makes it confusing. But, uh, Galbart Glover is, uh, again, he's a master of Deepwood Mine. He's not a lord, technically, although people would call him lord out of courtesy because they don't, you know, but, but technically he's Master Glover. And uh, so there's, there's just, just to clear that up. Now, so the lord of Starfall is a lord. Lord Edric Dane, current lord of Starfall. And High Hermitage is, uh, you know, a knightly house, like I said. So, so that, that's, hopefully that clears that up for you guys. And we'll also hopefully clear that up in the future for you, because I know that can be confusing.
0: So are they actually, they are Danes, though? They are actually. They are,
1: they are Danes, but they're considered lesser Danes. Sort of like the Lannisters of Lannisport or lesser Lannisters. Got Gotcha. Um, Another example would be the Arryns of Gulltown. There are Aaron's of the Vale, who are the ruling Arons, and then there's the Aarons of Gulltown, who are a lesser branch of Arons that are chiefly in charge of Gulltown. It's a very good parallel to the Lannisters of Lannisport, because Gulltown and Lannisport are sort of parallels to each other. Um, so another detail, some more detail about High Hermitage, though, is it's High Hermitage. It's a mountain castle. So. It, Dark Star is kind of safe there. It would take a serious siege, uh, a long-term siege, to to, to keep him, to get him out of there, uh, and possibly that wouldn't even work. Uh, the thing about mountain strongholds is, using real-world examples, a lot of times there's secret passageways, there's caves that lead to other places. It's really difficult to cut them off of water. High Hermitage runs alongside the Torrentine, which also is the water source for Starfall. Uh, mm-hmm. Basically, if you, Steve's got a map there. Um, High Hermitage is... Correct me if I'm wrong. It's north of Starfall. Yes, just north of it. Just north of Starfall. So they're next to each other. Um, and it's a, it's a you know, House... The High Hermitage is sworn to Starfall. It's a, you know, it's a vassal of Starfall, whereas Starfall is a vassal of House Martell, of or, or Sunspear. And so, so Darkstar is an interesting character. He is a guy that over in Martell, the Red Viper, who has, of course, a very uh... Dark, sinister reputation. This is a guy that even Oberyn Martell thought of was bad news. Thought of a, he. He, he su- apparently, according to Demon Sand, uh... was never. Oberyn never got around to killing him. <laughs> Oberyn mm. was apparently going to kill Darkstar at some point, but just never did it. Uh, I don't know if he means that sort of flippantly, like he actually was going to do it, or, or if it was just he's just saying that like he would have killed him. You know, he just. I, know, I I bet he would have killed him because because uh, uh, Damon Sand has a very high opinion of his former his former you know he was esquire to him so his you know his former master. Mm. Uh, <laughs> so uh, he's you know he's a he's a he's probably the most he's possibly one of the most handsome men in Dorne and and according to Dorne Martell the most dangerous man in Dorne. Uh, why he's the most dangerous man in Dorm, we're not entirely clear on. Is some stuff he's done in the past, but he's got a reputation for having done a lot of dark things. Very unspecifically, cruel. He's known as a cruel man. Uh, Arianne reflects on him and thinks that she made a mistake with him. That is a mistake that she won't make again. That basically, she fell for his prettiness. The fact that he's so handsome, that is what misled her. And that she's determined not to make that mistake again. Now, and for people who've read this chapter, you can think, well, isn't she just making that mistake again? She just tries to go ahead and seduce Damon Sand again. And he rebuffs her because he's got this kind of pride about the fact that she, wouldn't, she couldn't marry him because he's not good enough, because he's a bastard. She throws that, he throws that in her face because when she tries to get him into bed again. It's very different. She has, maybe she hasn't fully learned her lesson, but having sex with Damon Sand for fun is nothing like an affair... With this very dangerous man, who you know is a, who has this reputation of being cruel, and the guy you want to get mixed up with, it's very different. We we can't we don't want to throw too much. I think it's a bit chauvinistic to call out for saying that Ariane is like a slut or something like that. She's not. She's just a woman that's comfortable with her own sexuality, mm-hmm. uh, partly because her culture doesn't forbid such, and partly because she's just naturally confident in that. Now, she does have some confidence issues in other things, like you know going through her mind. Uh, a lot of the things she thinks about are are, are, the, are clearly the uh, a lack of confidence in certain things, but she's very very confident in her attitude towards Darkstar and that that was a mistake. That she's not going to let that happen again. Hopefully her willpower is enough in that regard, but I think it will be. I think she's definitely learned a lot of lessons. Her her the caution that she's having in her mind is distinctly different than the pettiness, the petulance. That you see in her previous chapters, the deserving of uh, the, the 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 attitude that she has is is very. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? She she has, she believes she deserves things. She has entitlement, basically. She be, she believes she has entitlement, uh-huh. and now she's sort of uh, her attitude has changed. She's she's not just doing this for herself. She's doing it for Doran. She's doing it for her father. And I and I think that setting Darkstar aside just for a second, I think that. There's a good chance that she will be in charge of Doran very soon. He, mm-hmm. Doran Martell loves his family so much. He doesn't trust older people. Remember I pointed out very early in the show that he didn't include any older people in this group. And he doesn't in general seem to trust a lot of older people. He trusts his family. I don't know necess- necess- that it's he doesn't trust older people. It's that he trusts his family, and most of the older people in his family are dead. Yeah. Oberyn is yeah. dead. Elia is dead. Uh, his counsels. Like, look at, go back and look at the chapters and who he talks to. He doesn't really even trust his own maester. He doesn't trust the Sand Snakes until they swear on their father's grave. He trusts Aerial Hota, who, by the way, I think we might see him fight Darkstar. That could be a lot of fun. That would
0: be interesting.
1: Yeah, Aerial as an aside, was mentioned as being sent with Obara Sand and Balon Swan to go get Darkstar. To go. Because remember... And another important aspect of this chapter, Marcella lied to Sir Bael Swan of the King's Guard uh, on Arianne and Doran's uh, request. According to them, the killer of Sir Aries Oakheart was not uh, Ario Hotah. It was Darkstar. So Darkstar, according to them, is responsible for the death of Aries Oakheart and the maiming of Myrcella. So, So there you have it. So... The Kingsguard Knight thinks that this bad guy, Darkstar, they're going to pin even more on him. But Darkstar knows the truth. It's interesting, we we find out, will Darkstar be able to convince Balan Swan somehow that no, he didn't do that? Eh, probably not. He's not going to, his word probably doesn't carry much weight. But it will be interesting if he points that out. It will be interesting if such a thing happens. It'll also be interesting if Darkstar somehow evades all this. Maybe kills Ariel Hotah, maybe kills Obara San, maybe kills Balan Swan, maybe kills just one of them or who knows, it gets away, uh, then what will happen?
0: Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, I guess we should probably start wrapping things up here. Uh, yeah. We've pushed our two-hour mark. We are. Um, once again, you can always uh, find us on Facebook. We have a Facebook page out there. Just look up history of Westeros. Um, you can also email us, uh, westeroshistory at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter. Um, also, is, uh, Westeros History. Um, so anything else we need to plug on there
1: uh, maybe some there some shout outs um, thanks of course as always to tower of the hand and Westrust.org. those are personally uh, my two main uh, sources of information um, the forums there on westrust.org in particular a lot of the posters there helped me uh, talk through a lot of these um, the details of this chapter and of course when you chat and and type out a bunch of uh, thoughts with a bunch of other smart people, you wind up um, being feeling a lot smarter and more educated on the topic. Uh, in the future, I should probably start naming some of them by by their screen names, but I don't. I didn't happen to record a lot of that, but that would be that would be appropriate to give credit where credit's That's due. Nice. Uh, thanks to Ashea, of course, who uh, helped me prepare for this, and she's going to be appearing in some future episodes, folks. Look out for that. Um, awesome. And let's see who else, uh, of course. Uh, our friends in some of the other podcasting communities as well, uh, Podcast Winterfell and Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things. Those are our buddies over there. Uh, so I guess in conclusion for this chapter, it was pretty exciting. Not a lot actually, quote-unquote, happened. It was more about information and exposition. Um, uh, the, the biggest takeaways are the potential for, in, in my mind, are the thoughts on Darkstar and on John Connington and on Aegon, and, of yeah. course, the future of dragons, the future of Daenerys. That was a big thing. Daenerys, uh, her welcome might not be as, uh, what we thought it would be. Uh, there could be a lot of conflict around that. There could be outright war between the two dragon factions. Um, Arianne herself maturing a lot, maybe not all the way there, but possibly in charge soon. The news of Quentin's death could literally kill Doran Martell. I think he could die of, uh, or at least his health could take a turn for the worse. Uh, he mm-hmm. could become depressed over such, over such thoughts. And if he becomes depressed, I mean, this is a guy that's extremely unhealthy. I mean, he's got his fingers, his, his, his finger knuckles are the size of grapes, and his, his knees the size of cantaloupes, and yeah. he's, he's, he's failing, folks. He's going to die. He's not going to live through the series, I think.
0: And uh, Marianne's only
1: 23. She's learned a lot, but has she learned enough? Is she capable of guiding Dorne uh, to, uh, to prosperity? Will Dorne stay loyal to her when she takes over? other good questions. A lot of that we'll cover in our next episode, which we, we will be focused on Dornish plots, and a lot of the other aspects that we didn't touch on. Um, Dorn Martell himself, a little more about Ariel Hota and Dorn's relationship with his wife, uh, some notes on Quentin, a lot about Quentin, actually, um, as well as some more on Arianne, some more on the outlook for Dorn throughout the rest of these wars, and of course, some more tidbits of history here and there. We'll talk about the Ullers. Uh, they're, they're an interesting uh, story. The Ullers are half mad. The other Ullers are worse. <laughs> and we'll throw in some mention of a few of the other houses too, because the Dorn's a pretty interesting place. So
0: that's, nice.
1: that's a lot to look forward to, folks. Thanks a lot for listening. Yep. Thanks again. And we're signing out now.